God is good all the time. Can I throw a Southern Illinois word out at you just to expand your lexicon? Used to didn't. Let me use it in a sentence. We used to didn't have this many people at church in July, but apparently we do now. So it is marvelous to see you this morning. Always good in the house of the Lord. And I concur with Don. You all sounded wonderful. And you got to remember, he went to Juilliard. (laughs) I'm just a regular guy, but I thought you sounded fantastic as well. Thank you guys for inviting folks to church. It makes all the difference. We've got our 500 initiative, but you don't have to be a part of that initiative to invite somebody to church. Out at the Sync Center, there are some cards. Let me talk about three variations. First of all, you got these small business cards. I carry these because the larger cards have more information, but they don't fit in my wallet. So I carry these. One group of these invites people to this worship service on Sunday or the eight o'clock or the 11 o'clock. The other variation of this invites people to our online worship. So if you're dropping one of these in uh, where you pay a bill, that type of thing, if you're inviting somebody when you're on vacation, give them one of the online ones People around here offer one of these. The larger ones are really handy if you know you're going to invite somebody. So just take it with you. If you decide you're going to invite your waiter or your waitress or your doctor or your chiropractor, uh, take it in with you. It gives more information if you have the ability to carry that. But I want to say thank you. These seeds that we are planting, every invitation is a seed. Whether people accept or don't accept isn't the point. Every invitation is a win. And the Bible promises that if we keep sowing seeds, that some will land on good ground and bear forth 30, 60, even 100-fold returns. So we are excited about that. We're excited about Christ Church, and I'm excited that you are here today. The ultimate punishment in the Bible is not when a city or a nation is threatened, attacked, seized, sieged or raised. That's not the ultimate punishment. It's not even when fire and brimstone fall or horrific plagues occur or death angels visit in response to the sin of the people. The ultimate punishment is the removal of God's presence. I'm going to say that one more time. The ultimate punishment is the removal of of God's presence. When God's presence is removed, so is the good and the decent and the honorable. When God's presence is removed, culture crumbles to its lowest common denominator. What's surprising to me is not that cultural implosion happens when God's presence is removed. What's surprising to me is how quickly it happens. Clearly, the lines between saint and sinner, law and order, civility and chaos are razor thin. When the hand of God is removed from anything, good will be eradicated and sin will be all that remains. You see, God is not only good, but God is the good. You remove God, 
the good is removed as well. Sodom and Gomorrah were singled out for destruction because of their sin. Absolutely. But they were ultimately destroyed because of their lack of goodness. God agreed to spare the cities if even 10 righteous people could be found. 10 righteous people could not be found. In the end, it was the absence of good, not the preponderance of evil, that brought down fire and rain. The Old Testament prophets called out sin. They warned continually of God's punishment. Those of you that are reading the Bible through with us, we are in Ezekiel right now. It's prophecy after prophecy after prophecy. It calls out sin. It warns of God's punishment if the people don't repent. The people of Judah and Israel, they could have heeded the prophets at any time. They could have repented. They could have turned back to God until they couldn't. Because at some point, the clock winds down. At some point, the final out is recorded. At some point, the buzzer sounds and the game's over. You see, you can always repent of your sin and accept Jesus until you can't. When people cast off the rule and reign of God, they're not only in line for God's punishment, they're in line for something much worse. God withdrawing his presence altogether. Welcome to Soul Salsa 2023. In Psalm 10, we learn that God can handle our hurt, our pain, and our disappointment. In Psalm 11, we discovered that because God is our protector, we don't have to be afraid. In Psalm 12, we were encouraged not to give up because God will reward the good and God will punish the evil. Psalm 13 reminds us the most real thing in the cosmos are the promise of God. They hold firm when everything else gives way. And today we're going to take a look at Psalm 14. Our definitions, five definitions, are propelling us through this series. Number one, soul. It's the essence of every human being. The essence of who you are. Number two, salsa. An upbeat, exciting, dynamic, and attractive life. That's what we're looking for. Upbeat, exciting, dynamic, attractive lives. That's what the end game is. Number three, church. An exciting place where lives are transformed. There is excitement when we get together. Bible says where two or three are gathered together and call upon the Lord. God is going to be there with us. This is an exciting place. Every week I hear stories of things God has done in this house, in this place, in the lives of people. Number four, a Christian, a disciple of Jesus Christ, filled with spirit, passion, creativity, and life. And number five, ministry, the heart-pounding, dynamic work we do as the physical presence of Jesus Christ. When I look closely at our prevailing culture, I see a people at war with God. We are victims of a largely successful attempt by people who hate God to drive Christianity from the public sphere. I think history will look back upon many of our prevailing cultural ethics and sensibilities and conclude, what? Were they thinking? I don't know about you, but it's getting harder and harder for me to tell what's demonic and what's just stupid. 
sometimes I wonder if we're being punished. But I think for the most part, we're just sort of on our own. Original sin was more than eating a forbidden piece of fruit in the Garden of Eden. You know, they speculated so much on what that piece of fruit was. Traditionally, we've always thought an apple, right? Because they like grow in the Midwest. But most people think it was a pomegranate. I don't know about you, but I don't like pomegranates. So if that was the forbidden fruit, that wouldn't have been a temptation at all. Had it been like a brown sugar cinnamon pop tart? Now all of a sudden, I'm leaning in, right? But, you know, pomegranates, eh. When you think about original sin, it wasn't just about eating forbidden fruit. It was about rejecting the reign and rule of God. Adam and Eve shook their fists at God and said, who are you to decide what's best for us? Who are you to presume that you have authority over us? Who are you to tell us how to live? And we've been shaking our fists at God ever since. My simple message to this nation today resonates with that of the prophets. Repent and turn to God. But who needs to repent? In this chapter, David ponders a world devoid of God. Verse 1, only fools say in their heart there is no God. When David wrote this, he had to be thinking of one guy in particular. It stemmed back to a time before David was king. He was living on the run, being chased through the deserts around the Dead Sea by King Saul. He was the head of a mercenary band of soldiers. It was sort of like Poncho and Lefty. The Hebrew word translated fool is Nabal or Nabal. This is the root word of the name of this dumber than a box of rocks character from Samuel 25, 1 Samuel 25, 25. When the mercenary David and his guerrilla band requested provisions from a wealthy and insolent man by the name of Nabal, whose name literally means fool, they were treated really rudely. The insolence cost Nabal his life. You say, boy, I thought David was a worshiper of God. David was a worshiper of God. David was a bad dude. Cost Nabal his life. Tyndall reminds us that this kind of fool is not a person of misguided conviction. It's one who offers an irresponsible gesture of defiance. Jesus told a story about another fool. Do you remember the story? This man is a farmer. He has some really great crops. Apparently there's great need all around him. So he takes all of his grain, he builds new bins, he holds back his crops, he doesn't give thanks to God, he doesn't share with the people, he has no concept that he has been blessed to be a blessing in any way, shape, or form, and he thinks to himself, everything is going my way, I'm just gonna enjoy the rest of my life and do what I want. And Jesus said that very night his life was taken from him. And we call that the parable of the rich fool. Bad play. The ultimate expression of foolishness in a life is the denial of God. The ultimate expression of foolishness in a culture is the systemic denial of God. 
You see, if there is no God, we crown ourselves God. And humans are really, really bad at it. We just are really bad at being our own gods. You remove higher law and things get low really fast. For David, all of creation offered indisputable evidence of the existence of God. And and to ignore the reality of God in the face of such a preponderance of evidence rendered one a fool. Romans 1, 21 and 22 sums it up in a way that applies to our culture, I think, very directly. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. The result was their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they became utter fools instead. Verses 2 and 3. The Lord looks on the earth and wonders if there's anyone with real understanding. But all have turned away and become corrupt. You ever wonder if anyone gets it? You ever just look out there and think, is there anybody out here who gets it? Do you realize how much arrogance is involved in the very thought? And I think it all the time. I mean, if I'm wondering why other people don't get it, that means that I get it. And deep in my heart, I feel like if other people were more like me, this would be a better world. And I bet you do too. And then it says, all have turned away. All have become corrupt. I don't know about you. I read this verse. I want to defend myself. I've not turned away. I've not become corrupt. But even as I claim my own innocence, I negate both the Bible and the power of the gospel. Romans 3.23 reads, all have sinned. Who sinned? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And it's not until we realize that we are all sinners that we can be saved. It's not until we realize that we're part of the problem that God can use us to be part of the solution. It's not until we repent of our own sin that God is free to rule in our lives. This week, I got this sermon done on Thursday afternoon. It's always my goal to have my Sunday sermon done by Thursday, and I, I got it done. Went home, and I just thought about it all weekend. And I thought, this is the kind of sermon a really grumpy 61-year-old would write. <laughs> I did. And so I began to pray about that. Lord, is this a sermon a grumpy 61 year old would write and the Lord just spoke to my heart yep sure looks that way to me (laughs) and I said Lord uh, all I do when I preach is take the text so isn't this really David's fault (laughs) and the Lord just spoke to my heart again now this one's on you captain And I said, then what do I need? And God said, this is a chapter about hope. And you're missing it. You're missing the hope. Share with them 
the hope. So the hope begins with an epiphany. They are not the problem. I am. They, all those people out there, they are not the problem. I am. You see, when we can harmonize with the spiritual and we can sing, it's not my brother and it's not my sister, but it's me, oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Now we're starting to get somewhere where God can do something with us. Verses four and five, the evil enjoy God's blessings without offering thanks, but terror will grip them. You know, one of the most familiar lines in the whole Bible is it rains on the just and it rains on the unjust. And we've always interpreted that to mean bad things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people. And that's because we get our theology from an old Credence Clearwater revival song. (laughs) But the Bible was written in an arid culture. It was written in a desert culture. Rain is always a blessing. What this is really saying is that blessing comes upon the good and scratch your head, blessing also comes upon the evil. It's not that everybody has bad times that's confounding the writer. It's that everybody has some blessing. But he says terror will grip the wicked. Jesus said that he comes to bring us abundant life. We are blessed to be blessings. That's what the rich fool didn't get. Life is a gift, not a sentence. I need you to hear that. Life is a gift and not a sentence. The complaint of the psalmist is not that the blessings of life are enjoyed by the evil. It's that the evil lacked the good sense to acknowledge that God is the source of those blessings. And because they refuse to acknowledge that God is the giver of all good things, they're going to live in constant terror that they're going to lose it all. Thanksgiving is more than appreciation. It's an understanding that none of us are self-made. We are God-made. And all good gifts come from God to us. I live every day of my life in thanksgiving and gratitude and appreciation. Because I believe that every opportunity I have ever been afforded from the moment I was born was made possible by the sacrifice of other people. Now what I did with those opportunities, that's on me. But the opportunity that was in front of me, it was made possible by the sacrifice of other people. And it was also made possible by the providence of God That opportunity in itself is a blessing from God. The atheist looks at this world and concludes if there were a God, there would be no pain. But the believer looks at the same world and concludes if there were not a God, there would be nothing but pain. The opportunity I've had in my life Those people who have sacrificed to give me and you those opportunities are evidence of the goodness of God. And we are to live in appreciation, not in entitlement. Verse six, 
The wicked frustrate the plans of the oppressed, but the Lord will protect his people. Satan always overplays his hand. Satan just doesn't know when to quit. And he always overplays his hand. If you watch in our world, right when you think Satan is going to win it all, he overplays his hand and things push back. He always overplays his hand. Not only do the wicked reject God, they always push it even further. They are openly adversarial toward God, for they live in open contempt of higher law. You see, if you're your own God, then you are the ultimate law giver. But if God's God, we live and submit to higher law. The wicked think they can take what they want from who they want anytime they want. They deny God by thinking that judgment will never come to the oppressor and justice will never come to the oppressed. But just because we ignore higher law, just because we pretend God doesn't exist, doesn't change anything. It's sort of like the person that doesn't believe in gravity. It doesn't really matter if you believe in gravity. If you drop something, it's going to fall. And higher law and God are the same way. It doesn't really matter if you believe in God or not. God's promises still come true and God is still on the throne. And this is that God will protect his people. You see, the wicked are standing in front of a steamroller. When they oppress the helpless, they stand in front of a steamroller. And their destruction is not a matter of if, it is a matter of when. And the salvation of the righteous and the deliverance of the oppressed is also not a matter of if, it is a matter of when. God will, will frustrate the plans of the wicked. But the Lord will protect his people. Verse seven, oh, that salvation would come from Zion and rescue Israel. Let's explore a question. Is it possible for an apostate culture, that's a culture that's rejected God, a re- culture's thrown God out, essentially. Is it possible for an apostate culture to be rescued and saved by God, even if the majority reject God at every turn? It's a fair question. Sometimes I watch the news and I try not to, but you gotta, you gotta keep up a little bit, right? I mean, you gotta keep up a little bit. But I watch the news and I think when I was, I think a few years ago, it kind of made me angry. And, and now it just sort of breaks my heart. It just, it just breaks my heart. And I, and I think, what is wrong with us? What is wrong with us? As a people, what are we doing? What are we thinking? And at times it just seems overwhelming. And at times you just want to give up. Or you just want to radiate at high frequencies and just start, you know, doesn't do any good. There's plenty of that already. So is it possible for an apostate culture to be rescued and saved by God, even if that culture has largely rejected God? This was the good news that God put on my heart that I needed to share with you. 
Yes. Yes. Second Chronicles 7.14 reads, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. I need you to hear me. I need you to lean in right now. This passage declares that God's disposition toward any nation will not be determined by the wicked. It will be determined by the righteous. I'm going to say it one more time. This passage tells us that God's disposition toward any nation will not be determined by the wicked. It will be determined by the righteous. God doesn't say if the wicked will. God says if my people will. God's favor upon a people or a nation is not dependent on all those sinners out there repenting. It's dependent on all us sinners in here repenting. So what specifically are the righteous called to do? How does God promise to respond? We're given this if-then clause. If we do this, then God will do that. We see it throughout the Bible. I argued last week that God's promises are true. You can stake your eternity on them. This is a promise of God. Four things we've got to do, three things God will do. If you're taking notes, now would be a great time to take them. If we will, if we will, humble ourselves. Humility begins when you realize everyone else isn't the problem. I'm the problem. You're the problem. That's where humility begins. It's not them. It's me. If we will humble ourselves, number two, pray. Doesn't say post. It doesn't say tweet. Do people still tweet or do they ax now? I have no idea what they do. Doesn't say talk. It says, if my people will humble themselves and pray, my guess is most of us got pretty strong fingers and the muscles in our jaws are really worked hard, but I doubt any of us have calluses on our knees. If my people will humble themselves, pray, and seek my face. Oh, we seek God's hand, don't we? Oh, we seek his hand. We think God is a DJ in the sky, and we are on the request line. Is that what he says? If you will seek my face. Did you know the true reward of God is knowing God? The hymn writer had it right, and he walks with me, and he talks with me. He tells me I am his own. We can know God. We can seek the face of God. We can know something of this infinite creator of the cosmos. If my people will humble themselves, pray, and seek my face, and then number four, and turn from their sin. Shane, I, I thought we were really focused on others. No, that's really not what we're doing today. That's what I was doing back before me and God had the conversation over the weekend. <laughs> if we'll turn from our sins. If we will repent. And if we do those four things, we are promised that God will, number one, hear from heaven. 
God will hear from heaven. You know what I found out in our 500 initiative as we've been inviting people to church? One of the biggest shocks to me and to others who invite is how many people they've invited to church and that person responded, I've been looking for a church. You see, I'm convinced there are far more people willing to attend church if they got invited than there are Christians willing to invite people. I'm also convinced that there are a lot more people who want to decide that the problem is everybody else than there are who will actually humble themselves before God and repent and pray. And God says if we will humble ourselves, pray, seek his face, turn from our sin, he will hear us from heaven. And secondly, he will forgive our sin. He will forgive our sin. And number three, he will heal our land. So here's the key to our collective rescue and salvation. Godly people must be faithful to God. David calls atheists fools, but he never blames the sorry state of Israel on them. And neither did Jesus. You ever wonder why Jesus was so much harder on the religious establishment than he was on rank-and-file sinners? It's because he knew everything rests on the followers of God, not on sinners. I have no doubt if Jesus came back to earth today, he'd hunt down all us preachers first. I have no doubt about it, because that's what he did when he came the first time. When God restores his people. I love this. When God restores his people. He hasn't restored his people yet. But when God restores his people. When God's people turn from our sin. When we embrace the reign and rule of God. Restoration will come. Like a long and gentle rain to a drought stricken land. I think that's what Jesus was getting at when he said we are light and we are salt. We are what makes the world palatable to God. We are what continues to give people who don't know Jesus another day and another chance to receive Christ. And it says when God restores his people, Jacob will shout and rejoice. I once heard salvation history described as a guitar string with one end inserted in creation and tuned at the other end of the second coming of Christ. And anywhere you pluck on the string sends reverberations all up and down the time continuum, past, present, and future. The result of God's people doing God's stuff plucks the string, and it brings torrents of joy and celebration, not only to the now, but to the great about to be, and healing to even what was. There is nothing more powerful than God's people being God's people. And there's nothing more powerful than the church being the church. There's nothing that Satan hates more and there's nothing that God values more. Psalm 14 suggests the state of our region, our nation and our world rests upon the godly. You see, sinners are gonna sin and haters are gonna hate and liars are gonna lie and thieves are gonna steal. Can I hear an amen from somebody? But we can't be those people. We are God's people. We are set apart for a special purpose. It is the presence of God's people that keeps this nation from destruction on one hand and offers hope to everyone on the other. 
God may rightly punish us for our sin, but the obedience of God's people will keep God from withdrawing God's presence from this nation. So what are we to do? What are we to do? We're to be the church. We are to be the church. Say it with me, be the church. Let's say it again, be the church. All right, we're gonna do a little responsive thing. When I go like this, you say, be the church. Let's practice, be the church. I need a little more, be the church. What is the best thing Christ's church can do for an unstable world? Be the church. What is the best thing we can do for an unhinged nation? Be the church. What's the best thing we can do for our hurting region? Be the church. What's the best thing we can do for our suffering cities and towns? Be the church. What is the best thing we can do for our broken families? Be the church. When the church embraces the reign and rule of God and is wholly committed to obedience to God, Souls are saved, lives are transformed, families are restored, cultures are healed, and heaven rejoices with us. People rightly speak of the mercy of God, but make no mistake, God's mercy is never shown to the unrepentant. Never, not once is God's mercy shown to the unrepentant. It is shown to those who will humble themselves, pray for forgiveness, and seek the face of God. And who's gonna do that if it's not us? They're not gonna do it. It's gonna have to be us. This isn't on them, those people out there somewhere. This is on us, the healing of this nation, of this people is on us. During early church, toward the end of the service, somebody walked up to me and whispered something in my ear. And it was profound. They had just heard this message and they said, and I quote, I've got to learn to trust God more than I trust myself. And that's really it, isn't it? At some point, we have to learn and decide, are we going to believe the promises of God or not? Or not. And if we believe the promises of God, we will humble ourselves, pray, seek God's face, and turn from our sin. And if we do, we can expect that God will heal, hear from heaven, forgive our sin, and heal our land. You know what the cool thing is? We can do those things individually. I can do all of those things, all of them. And if you do too, we've started a movement. If we all do, who knows what incredible things God could do with sinners like us. Let's pray. Thank you, dear God, for this incredible psalm. And thank you for reminding me over the weekend that there is hope. There is absolute hope when the condition of the world rests upon the godly. Dear God, we open our hearts to you. We cry out to you. We ask you to forgive us.
We seek your face. We ask you to do your work in us. And we can't wait to see how the actions of an obedient church are going to impact the world. Heal our land, oh God. We are so broken. And we pray it in Jesus' strong name. Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand. Realize this is on us. This is on you. This is on me. And the place to begin is by leaning in to Jesus.